Intellectual property, like real property, is subject to tax. But unlike real property, intellectual property is not subject to physical constraints, and so IP owners are theoretically free to own it in any jurisdiction. Therefore, owners and creators of intellectual property have an opportunity to proactively consider how their firm's IP is created, owned, and exploited in order to optimize their tax and financial positions. I'm Amy Kotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. To provide us with insight into this topic, we have Stephanie Lodis, John Lair, and Brian Davis. Stephanie is a partner in Baker Hostetler's Intellectual Property Group. She has a PhD in organic chemistry and co-leads the firm's biotechnology, chemical, and pharmaceutical practice team. John is a partner and tax group leader for Baker Hostetler's Washington, D.C. office and co-leader of the transactional tax team. And Brian, also a partner, is leader of the international tax team. Welcome to the show, Stephanie, Brian, and John. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having us. Great. Well, to begin, I'd like to start with you, Stephanie. Leaving aside tax, what IP considerations should be evaluated when determining where a business locates its IP? I'm talking both from the geographical perspective as well as the corporate structural perspective. Well, let's first describe what is intellectual property. Intellectual property is patents, trademarks, copyrights, generally speaking. And what these patent rights or intellectual property rights allow you to do is to exclude other people, companies, from doing something. And at practically every country in the world offers these exclusivity rights. There are treaties in place between countries, but significantly every country has a different legal structure. Every country has different enforcement provisions. Um, So typically, companies should seek investment in intellectual property in countries with strong legal frameworks for IP protection. And that will generally be where your company does business or where your competitors do business. Thanks, Stephanie. John, before the U.S. tax law changes in 2017, why did U.S. businesses of all sizes, especially those large U.S. multinationals, own or move some or all of their intellectual property to locations outside the United States? I think there's really four major reasons for this movement. IP value, comparable corporate tax rates, certain non-U.S. countries actually impose withholding taxes on royalty income, and the U.S. tax system history. Let me focus in in on each of these uh, for a few minutes. Uh, from an IP value perspective, generally we think about IP value and it, it actually increases over time, especially with further further developments. And the tax cost to moving it relatedly increases as well. Before 2017, focusing on rates, the U.S. corporate tax rate was 35%. Let's compare that to a 19% U.K. corporate tax rate. And then some countries around the world actually had little to no tax rates. So by organizing a structure that allowed income to end up in a country with little to no tax and a deduction to be taken in a country with a high tax rate, this can really have a profound effect on a business's global effective tax rate. And so moving IP offshore actually allowed um, that to happen. The other thing I'll point out in this context is, is that you know the rates charged between one party and its related affiliate are really determined by something known as transfer pricing and and can have a material impact on the overall taxes paid by a related group of entities. 
in certain instances, you want your transfer price to be higher. In others, you may want it to be lower. And it's all about where is income and deduction occurring. The third point that I mentioned is, look, some countries actually do impose withholding taxes on royalty income being paid out of that country. And so depending upon a structure, uh, moving IP into a jurisdiction where there's no withholding tax paid on, on licensing uh, or royalties uh, revenue um, can eliminate some or all of these taxes that could be applicable. And finally, the U.S. tax system history. So let's think about the U.S. tax system. The U.S. taxes, unlike most countries, on a worldwide basis. But because of a, a taxing regime implemented back by the Kennedy administration, the U.S. tax that was due on, on active foreign source income of non-U.S. subsidiaries could be deferred until that income was actually physically brought back here to the U.S., and finally, moving non-U.S. IP out from the U.S. actually allows for the use of these uh, deferral rules that were implemented back by the Kennedy administration. Brian, do you have something you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, I would just add that, you know, as John mentioned, the, the rules that the Kennedy administration enacted um, created a situation that made the U.S. system one of the most favorable systems for taxing overseas operations for any multinational. And as a result, as John noted, there was a strong impetus to consider moving IP offshore where that 35% rate wouldn't be paid today and perhaps a you know three or four percent rate might be paid on earnings, with the result that you know by just simply moving the IP, you got the time value benefit of not paying taxes at a high rate today on earnings, and as a result, those earnings could be reinvested in building businesses outside the U.S. So, John. What changed both in the United States and around the world in recent years that caused the U.S. and non-U.S. businesses to reevaluate how and where their intellectual property is held? Let's put the entire podcast into a bit of perspective from a, a tax perspective. This is really all about tax revenue collections and relative tax fairness and inequality. A number of years ago, political and, and media attention increasingly focused on corporate tax affairs of multinational enterprises. A few years back, certain large multinationals, especially in the uh, IT sector, were the focus of government and media scrutiny in both the U.S. and the United Kingdom because of tax planning. And despite having a substantial amount of profits in particular jurisdictions, their ability to, to structure their affairs into paying little to no current taxes actually was the impetus for a, a significant push around the world to, to manage and, and deal with these issues that we're talking about today. Think about everything that I've, I've already said and think about how relatively simple it is to move intellectual property from one jurisdiction to another. Unlike physical assets where you would have to hire movers and use trucks, cargo ships, planes, rail, IP actually can be moved via paper transfers and the internet. However, because IP can create a tax deduction in a high tax jurisdiction and result in income in a low tax jurisdiction, the movement of intellectual property can really have a profound impact 
on a multinational enterprise's global effective tax rate, effects that purely domestic businesses are actually unable to replicate and also have a related impact on you know, a, a country's tax collections as well. And so because of all this, the G20 and politicians and the media, the EU and the, the OECD actually began to focus on these types of issues. In February 2013, the OECD published its Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Report. And in July of that same year, they actually published their action plan as well. The BEPS efforts are, are ongoing uh, in these regards as well. The EU has taken a similar effort with the publishing of its EU parent subsidiary directive in December 2015. So, so it really is, at, at the end of this, just a, a focus and, and making sure that uh, everybody's aware of what's going on and seeing how it, it, it appears to be unfair that some very large profitable companies, for example, can take advantage of a, a, a global tax regime, if you will, relying upon the, the, the U.S. tax rules and non-U.S. tax rules uh, to really get to a point where overall they're paying little to no tax around the world. Brian, what are your thoughts? So just to echo a little bit of what John mentioned, the, the tax landscape did start to shift uh, with the, the BEPS project uh, that was championed by the OECD and, and the G20. And really, as, as mentioned before, the focus was, hey, you know, companies seem to have the ability to avoid paying taxes today. Um, maybe they'll pay those taxes later. And by doing some interesting tax planning, largely centered on intellectual property and sometimes high value services, these companies are really able to show excess profits that are free of taxation on a real-time basis. And, and maybe that is unfair because domestic companies can't deal with that. Separately, we had a tax reform in the United States in 2017 that also created changes that further impact tax structuring as it relates to intellectual property in part because the favorable Kennedy regime was called back a little bit to enact a regime that made it a little bit less favorable to just automatically push your IP, if you're a U.S.-based multinational, offshore. It doesn't mean that it wasn't still attractive or it is not still attractive to do. It just made the decision-making a little more complex. Thank you. Stephanie, is there a one-size-fits-all solution for all types of U.S. businesses as to where and how they hold their intellectual property? And does that same answer also apply to non-U.S. businesses? A one-size-fits-all strategy certainly would be convenient, but unfortunately, it's not that easy. Where a company, either a U.S. or a non-U.S. company, will decide to seek intellectual property protection will take into account so many different factors. So it's always a good idea to be able to speak with a qualified attorney or a, a patent agent to be able to walk through each of the scenarios. One thing you're going to want to evaluate is, well, what kind of business are you? Are you in the high-tech space? Are you in the pharmaceutical space? Are you in consumer product space, all of those were factor into where you might want to seek intellectual property. 
It will also matter how much money you have. Uh, frankly, filing these patent applications, just the act of filing them, not even you know obtaining the exclusivities that the patents would afford, it's expensive. So is your budget $20,000 or is your budget $120,000? That makes a difference as well. Brian, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, both Stephanie and John have mentioned important points that I think make make the case or support the argument that there really is no one size fits all that really applies in terms of tax structuring for IP these days. Um, as John mentioned, the tax landscape has changed. And with that, there are new considerations that didn't exist before that companies need to take into account or businesses need to take into account when they think about how they structure their affairs, uh, and in particular, their IP for tax optimization. And as Stephanie mentioned, a lot of planning these days, really in IP tax planning is focused on, you know, what industry are you in? What, what are the transactions? What are the business drivers in that industry? Because uh, in comparison to the old days where there might have been a knee-jerk reaction, of course, we push our IP offshore as a U.S. multinational. Increasingly, there are a number of considerations that you have to take into account in order to really optimize the, the IP planning. And, you know, so I would say this. There is not really a one-size-fits-all approach that applies, particularly with respect to U.S.-based enterprises. And instead, you know, business drivers are taking on a more central role. And in part, you know, IP is mobile from a tax perspective. I think that's an important concept to remember. Uh, John mentioned that you know, through contractual arrangements, IP from a tax perspective is able to move. Um, and that's because in tax, we tend to focus on economic ownership rather than legal ownership. And so that focus, you know, tax is a economic discipline. So that focus on economic ownership is really what permits the those excess returns, kind of those profits that are really only attributable to IP or high value services because they really exceed the the, the normal investment return that someone would have on invested capital. We're able to move those because tax is an economic discipline. But increasingly, because of the changes in the landscape over the, the last decade, we're really focused on where is substance and what is the substance of the business? So business drivers become a very important part of the tax and IP structuring discussion. There are, of course, structural issues that tax folks will want to take into consideration because at a very technical level, they may change the result. But at a, at a very high level, we're really talking about, you know, what is your business and, you know, where do you want to have those lab coats? Where do you want to have those coders? Where do you plan to have the engineers reside? Because that will be a key driver in the new world. I guess I'd step back and say for U.S. businesses, U.S. businesses tend to focus on, you know, does it make sense to hold the IP in the U.S. versus what is the cost of the structure to own that IP outside the U.S.? And as Stephanie mentioned, IP is expensive. Um, you know, you want to take into consideration the tax rules relevant to exploiting that IP. 
And, you know, again, there are incentives that countries are, countries will compete to have you place your key engineers and your coders and your lab coats in their jurisdiction. So you kind of want to understand what that looks like also, uh, again, because substance will drive where we, we want to place IP from a tax perspective. From a foreign business perspective, I think there's more of a theme that most non-U.S. enterprises prefer to hold their IP outside the U.S. and keep the IP, you know, uh, have it enter the U.S. in the form of either, either a license or embedded in the cost of goods. John mentioned transfer pricing before. That's a big term in, in, the, in the tax world and in the international tax world. Another one is limited risk uh, service providers or distributors. Um, often foreign businesses, at least historically, have wanted to have their IP held outside the U.S. and their U.S. operations be limited risk, really only entitled economically to a very small return with the notion that most of the value goes to those jurisdictions around the world that are creating incentives either through low rates or through incentives to hire high value service providers like lab coat, <laughs> you know, engineers, lab coats and coders in their jurisdiction. So I, with foreign businesses, as opposed to U.S. businesses, even with a lot of the tax law changes, we still see a preference to have the IP held outside the U.S. So at some point, every business owner will sell their business. Are there any pros or cons that a business owner should be mindful of as they structure their intellectual property ownership? Stephanie, let's start with you. Well, Amy, if a business owner believes at any point in time that it would be selling its intellectual property, it would want to think from the perspective of that potential buyer. Where might a buyer want the IP to be held? Another thing that is a consideration is at what point in time of the IP life cycle will this sale possibly occur? Will it occur earlier in the lifetime of the property or later in the lifetime of the property? And the relevance of the answer to that question will depend really on what technological field the business owner is in. For example, in the high tech space, intellectual property is very valuable at the beginning stages of the patent life, because usually the case that technological advances become less relevant farther into the future. Contrast that with things happening in the pharmaceutical industry. It's often the case that that type of intellectual property is less valuable at the beginning of the life cycle and becomes much more valuable towards the end of the life cycle, especially if the, the, it covers a product that's commercially successful. So lots of considerations for the business owner if he thinks that maybe in the future he will be selling the business, but that's just from an IP perspective. I know, Brian, you have some tax considerations. Thanks, Stephanie. I think there are probably two broad swaths of, of considerations here from a tax perspective, one operational and one related to the Exeter liquidity events. Um, from an operational perspective, I think you know, you're know you going to look at things that Stephanie might look at from an IP perspective you know, and ask, what is the most optimal operating model for exploiting the IP? And that is likely going to be focused on where your business will have substance. 
And then from an exit or liquidity perspective, you know, I think you have to ask, what is that exit event? Is that an IPO? In which case, it's really about, are you structured properly today? Because the, the company that's going public is the company that's going to be exploiting the IP. Or are we talking about a sale? And again, you know, consistent with what Stephanie said, we really want to focus on the buyer's perspective here. And in that regard, you're going to ask, is there something I can do that incentivizes the, the buyer to pay more for my company or for my IP? And will the buyer get a step up in value for the, the premium I'm going to ask them for my, my business or my IP? Meaning, will they get a tax benefit in the future if they pay more because of the way I hold the asset today or hold the business today? So before we close, do you have any final takeaways that you'd like to share, Stephanie? I think it's important to remember that intellectual property protection is powerful. It is a legal monopoly for a certain amount of time. What's also relevant is that it is very expensive, even more expensive than you would probably initially think. So it's important to be able to have a trusted advisor who you can go through the costs and make sure that everything that you're doing is in the best interests of your company. And it is certainly the case that you get what you pay for. I rarely advise clients that they should try to cut corners just to save a few bucks here and there. And John, what about you? No, I, I, I really agree with Stephanie. Um, and I want to come back to something Brian said earlier as well, which is, um, this really is a powerful tool, but it can be expensive. And, and I, I think that businesses really should be viewing this in some respects as a, as a life cycle type issue. Many entrepreneurs want to optimize their structures right away when they, when they go ahead and put them together. They want to have and, and make sure there's no kind of traps they're walking into. And of course, IP and tax optimization, everybody's hearing about it. They, you know, everybody wants to understand what it is and, and do the right thing initially. But those structures, which could be optimal structures, you know, a business, especially a, a, an early stage business, may not be ready for it. An entrepreneur needs to be aware of what's out there. But at the same time, because of potentially needing to set up legal entities and in, in jurisdictions outside of the U.S. and and, and managing those entities over time. It, it can become an expensive proposition. It's not to say that the work, you know, and thinking shouldn't be done on the front end because maybe there are some things to uh, uh, to be done, you know. But at the same time, you know, just want to make sure that everybody views this, you know, within, you know, I, I guess on a on a balanced scale, if you will, because there are a number of other things that the business owner is is looking to uh, to optimize at the same time. And, and this is one of the things on the list, but it, it may not be as high of a priority uh, today as it may be in the future. And last but not least, you, Brian. I think there are really three takeaways for this audience. Um, first, IP drives excess profits, and thus really should get early attention um, in the business lifecycle. You know, whether we're talking about patents or marketing intangibles like trademarks or, you know, an assembly of your skilled workforce or just your reputation intellectual property is arguably your enterprise's most valuable asset, you know, both from an operational and liquidity perspective. And so if you pay attention to it early, you're likely to increase the value 
to your enterprise, you know, kind of both operationally and on a liquidity event. Um, and, and where IP resides is going to dictate the tax implications. Um, so early attention is merited, even if you don't execute on that planning, because, you know, some of that planning may be expensive, uh, either to, to execute on or to, to manage on a go forward basis. It's at least good to understand the canvas um, and, you know, before you start to paint. I think the second point is, from a tax perspective, economic ownership is key. So while tax will follow legal ownership in the absence of an alternative, tax is really an economic discipline. And as such, the tax consequences are generally going to follow economic ownership. Stated differently, IP is a mobile asset from a tax perspective. And again, I think this just buttressed my first point. It's good to get in there early and start thinking about it even if you decide, well, this is a little bit too expensive to execute today. And then I think the third point is times are changing. You know, while there are general themes about how you structure your IP from a tax perspective, the day of a one-size-fits-all approach or just kind of no-brainer structuring is really gone. And today, tax authorities and, and businesses around the world are really going to focus on substance. So tax and IP planning has to be connected to the long-term business planning. And your, your tax team and your IP team should be talking with your operations teams and your business development teams um, so that everybody's aligned and everybody's aware of where the business is going. Um, and then tax can follow suit. These are great comments. Thank you, Stephanie, Brian, and John. Thanks for having us, Amy. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Amy. If you have any questions for the attorneys featured on this podcast, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Host are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Host without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Host are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.